Welcome to Broad Gauge Gossips, the podcast where you can learn about the faculty of the Department of Military History in the U.S. Army Command and General Staff College. The views expressed in this podcast are those of the participants and do not necessarily reflect the official policy or position of the Department of the Army, Department of Defense, or U.S. Government. Hello, we're here today with Assistant Professor Angela Riotto from the Department of Military History. Hello, Angela. Thank you for being with us. Hey, thank you so much for having me. I'm really excited to be here. So tell us a little bit about your uh, background, about your education. All right. Thank you so much. So I have my undergraduate degree from Juniata College, which is a small liberal arts school in smack dab in the middle of Pennsylvania, about 30 minutes from State College. I'm not a Penn, Penn State fan. Um, I had a triple major, history, political science, and geology. I was thinking I was going to do pre-law, and then I decided I did not like constitutional law. Um, so I added geology and then decided I didn't really want to deal with that my whole life, so I decided to go to get my master's in American history at the University of Southern Mississippi, and that is in American history with an emphasis on war and society. And then I got my PhD at the University of Akron in Ohio in American history with an emphasis on the American Civil War. Okay, tell us a little bit about your uh, professional history as a historian. So right after I finished my PhD in May of 2018, I was fortunate enough to get a job with Army University Press out of Fort Leavenworth, Kansas in July of 2018. So I'm very fortunate to have gotten a job so quickly. And I was part of the new films team. So we were stood up by Lieutenant General Mike Lundy to make films to teach current Army doctrine. So General Lundy did not think that soldiers and officers wanted to read doctrine manuals. So he thought that it'd be better if they just watched movies while like running on the treadmill or listening to the films while they were driving into work. So that's what we did. So it was teaching again current US Army doctrine, especially FM3O, large scale combat operations using history as the kind of case study or historical vignettes. So I worked on two films for Operation Iraqi Freedom, so the drive to Baghdad and then the fight for Baghdad. And then right before I came here to join the Department of Military History, I worked on a film for the Battle of Okinawa. Okay, yeah, it's kind of the, one of the new fields in, uh, in learning, right? It's less traditional book learning, more um, different media and multitasking. Yeah, so TRADOC um, now has published two pamphlets all about different ways to train and educate our force and one way they're pushing are like visual learning Mm -hmm. or audible learning auditory learning so like virtual staff rides simulations and then films Mm -hmm. and TRADOC of course is the training and doctrine command which is a DMH our parent 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 organization it's one of the one of the commands in the army uh, tell us a little bit about your um, your education uh, research and your areas of interest. So my larger area of interest is the American Civil War, and then within that I study prisoners of war, both United States and Confederate, and then their memories of captivity. So my main source base are memoirs, published diaries, published letters, and then other, any other form of narrative that they produced after their imprisonment. So the first ones appear as early as 1861, so people who were imprisoned for a very short amount of time. And then my last one is from 1930, and that's as more of these ex-prisoners are passing away. 
And so I track how they form a particular narrative about their experiences and how that changes over time. So not surprisingly, in the beginning, many of them have extreme hatred for their enemies and their former captors, and then that largely dissipates into the 20th century. And you see the like more reconciliationist themes. I'm not saying that everyone wanted to reconcile with their former enemies. There are definitely people until they're in their 90s being like, oh, those darn rebels. Right. But most most of them become more willing to reconcile, especially as they get older. Okay. So you work in a field that is both um, interesting to a large number of people and also increasingly controversial. So how do you approach being a scholar in the academy of the Civil War while many of its uh, issues or even externalities are current in American kind of cultural debate? It's very difficult. Uh, one way I do it is just not to engage in many of those public debates, especially on social media, because it can be a very dark place to be. Also, when you realize that some of the people who are engaging in those debates actually don't want to learn about the history, and they just want to talk about their own particular heritage or their own opinions. Another way to do it is to engage in maybe especially in our COVID world, like online symposiums where the public can come and talk about your research. Also before COVID, going to conferences or working with teachers. That was a great way to discuss some of the major issues that are like currently in the media, but actually having a conversation rather than a fight. But most of the times I kind of try to stay out of it, to be honest. No, that's understandable. I, I know from having worked with you in the past that you also specialize in the field of memory studies, both kind of the, the history version of it and, and cross-disciplinary. So could, could you explain a little bit on what memory studies are and how they fit into historiography? Yeah, so memory studies is kind of a, from an interdisciplinary background, so sociology, psychology, um, and history, of course and talking about how people both physically and mentally and emotionally form memories, right? So some of these are unconsciously done. We know that from, let's say, medical experts, right? How mm -hmm. the brain actually forms memories, and then how people also, also consciously adjust their memories to fit a certain situation or a particular national narrative, right? Um, so I per like particularly study how individuals as members of a collective form memories. And many of these are very much consciously done. So I even found some people's works that they edit each other's publications to be like, that's not how I remember it. You must be misremembering it. Don't you mean this, right? So that's very conscious. But we also know that memories can form over time, incorrect memories can form over time when it comes to traumatic events, or when they're members of a collective and the dominant memory overcomes the recessive memories, yeah, if you will. Yeah, the dissonant memories. Yes. Yeah. So for example, say there is a traumatic event someone who lived through that event but actually did not see, witness a particular side of that event, after always hearing from other people about their memories, 
that memory will start to form in their brain even if they never experienced that memory. So you've asked them 30 years later, do you remember this? Of course I remember that person getting shot at the deadline in Andersonville. And then you find out they were actually never there. But the memory had kind of leaked through, through conversation, through publications, through sharing those memories that it becomes part of their memory. Mm -hmm. And I know I just used the term deadline, so people who are not prisoners of war uh, historians might not know, know what that is. So it is a line within the stockade, usually about six feet away from the barricade, after which if you cross, you are liable to be shot, right? Um, the, the actual numbers of people shot at the deadline are, are incredibly small, but again, memory, they have that, oh, one person was shot, and then that spreads, and then everyone remembers one guy who got shot even if they never ever saw anyone get shot. But it's part of that memory that forms as part of their collective identity. Yeah, and that's a, that's a very interesting connection to, uh, you know, of course, not all memory is, is, is created by trauma, but trauma does create and curate memory. And, and, and war is trauma, right? Mm -hmm. Trauma on a large scale and trauma on an individual scale. So there's different types of memory, as you as you probably know, and your, the listeners probably know, but I keep saying collective memory, which members of a larger group. There's national memory, so for example, or public memory. So everyone in this room knows what the American Civil War is. We don't actually have living memory of the American Civil War, but it's part of our larger public memory, our national memory, right? Right. Um, there's individual memory. There's traumatic memories. There's also, you can have... Again, those made-up memories, those fabricated memories. People have will have like flashbacks of things that think think they remember, especially from childhood. Mm -hmm. So there's all different types of memory, and they all form different ways in the brain. I am obviously not a neuroscientist, so I don't really know how that works. But memories, different types of memories, form different ways, and some are linked to smell, sights, what have you. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and this is an exciting new area in, in not just uh, history, but of interdisciplinary, as you've said. So it's, it's a very interesting, uh, very interesting research that you do. Um, speaking a little bit more kind of broadly on the Civil War, uh, as I mentioned earlier, and as you are far better aware than I am, this is a huge and hugely subscribed field. Indeed. So how do you as a professional locate yourself within a field that is so... Uh, both populated and, um, as I said, has a lot of attention paid to it. What do you mean, how do I locate myself? In terms of your research, your particular angle on, on a field that, again, has so many um, works being written in it every year. So, um, since I study prisoners of war, I am considered part of this dark turn in Civil War history. Uh, or American history, broader speaking. And some people even called this like the new post-revisionist history. And it's looking at what I think is just the reality of war, right? The reality of living in such a tumultuous period in American history. Um, but for a very long time, historians did not want to look at the darker side. They did not want to look at the trauma. They did not want to look at the death. They wanted to think about like grand bayonet charges and bugles and parades and all those soldiers who came back and integrated into society with no issues. That's what people wanted to hear. And I would say a lot of the movies, the fil films or movies are the same things, books, um, plays, 
That's kind of what they put forward. Like Gettysburg, Like right? Gettysburg. Uh, very triumphant. Um, very romantic. Yes. Yes, very yeah. romantic with a capital R. Yes, very romantic. Um, and some historians, like myself, realize that there's a lot of history that is uncomfortable. And... People don't want to study, but that's still, that doesn't mean that the history does not exist. That doesn't mean that there's not stories to be told. So I was, it's prisoners of war, um, people who were addicted to drugs, particularly um, opium, people with disabilities, um, war wounds, invisible wounds like so PTSD. That's all part of this, this dark turn. Even um, explorations into cowardice. And how certain regiments even construct a particular narrative about their experiences because they were labeled cowards at one battle, but they're like, we served the rest of the war with no issues. How is this one dark spot on our record influencing how people remember us? So trying to, I wouldn't say correct it, just add that extra dimension of the reality of war and what's it like after the war for these individuals. Mm -hmm. So for like my particular research, how I got interested in it was I was at a conference, actually the Society for Military History, and it was a panel on veterans. And it was a, the King Philip's War in New England in the colonial period, the Civil War and then Vietnam. And they're talking about veterans' difficulties reintegrating into society. I was like, oh, that's interesting. And I start, I was like, well, I want to work on veterans then for my PhD, for my dissertation. I started diving in, and I realized, first of all, POWs are barely in the record whatsoever. Um, like the historiography, they're just missing. And But if they are there, they're very much flat characters, right? They are the... The troubled souls who like survived Andersonville and they only hang out with other Andersonville vets and they always hate their enemy what have you and I was like well that can't be the case it has to be more complicated than that and guess what it is it's very much more complicated than that because they're people right just like other veterans are having many different experiences so are prisoners of war so that's how I got into prisoners of war but again like it's dark the stuff I study and the stuff I read is not fun. Um, the one day, I think I've maybe said this before, but I was talking to my mother on the phone and I was, it was a particularly hard day reading through some of these memoirs. Because um, people are talking about being, you know, eaten alive by lice, dying of multiple diseases, waking up and finding their buddy next to them dead. Just horrific, horrific stories. And my mom stopped and she's like, wow, I just realized what you stud is really morbid. <laughs> and I was like, yes, mom, it is very morbid. But just because it's morbid doesn't mean that it shouldn't be studied and their story should not be told. So that's where I locate myself. It's the dark side, but it's a very important side. Mm -hmm. It's like the shadow side. Yeah, certainly. Uh, you mentioned this kind of the idea of the dark side of both American history and Civil War history. Uh, what other... Um, developments in Civil War history and historiography are exciting to you? Oh, so I do have a soft spot for environmental history. I think it's because of my geology background. Um, I love looking at how terrain affects a particular campaign, but also how climate can affect a particular campaign or soldiers' experiences. So environmental history, both when it comes to 
terrain, weather, but also like disease, like thinking about like especially mosquitoes. I once had yellow fever, so I have a little soft spot for studying yellow fever and how that affects the Southern <laughs> campaigns. Experiential learning. Yes, experiential learning. I do not recommend it. Um, <laughs> this is a terrible thing. Um, but yeah, environmental history, I definitely like also looking into other forms of dark side history. So explorations of cowardice and then like regimental histories and how they construct a particular narrative. So just memory studies in general. Yeah, I'm not particularly interested in like political histories. Not to say that they're not important, but they're not what I want to wake up and read. I'd rather read about captives. <laughs> and, you know, how to overcome terrain difficulties. Yeah, and military history has that uh, advantage of the big tent, right? Yeah, that's the best thing about what we study is, like, you can just, whatever you're in the mood for, there is probably something for you. It's not just those bayonet charges and bugles. Mm-hmm. All right, thank you for joining us today, Dr. Riotto. No, thank you for having me. Please be sure to check out our other podcast, A Confused Heap of Facts, where we sit down with military historians from the Department of Military History and special guests to talk about topics in military history.